We are starting a new series today. We're calling this series The Promise. And uh, for the next number of weeks, we're gonna be diving in to the Old Testament and looking for Jesus in it. And the prophecies or the promises that are given to us of the coming of Jesus and what he will do. Uh, and it's gonna be a, a great series as we finish out the year leading this way, knowing that there's a plan from the very beginning to the very end. And we're gonna spend some time focusing on that. And before we start this, I gotta say, I love a great comeback story. Anybody else love those movies where the underdog wins and they, or the, the enemy thinks he wins or the villain thinks he wins? I mean, there's some, there's some iconic ones out there. You know, like, uh, what about Avengers? Like the Infinity War one, right? You know? Snaps his finger, everyone goes, and if you haven't watched it, that's your fault, it ruined it. You know, everyone goes, half, half the, everyone's gone, and then, but then the next movie comes out. They all come back, good wins. What about this? This is another great comeback story where the enemy thinks he's won. What about Jaws? If you watch Jaws, you can look into that shark's eye when he's taking the boat down, like literally eating the boat, and you can see he thinks he's won, but he does not know that there is a tank coming towards him. You know, and, and here is the greatest, in my opinion, we can all have opinions on this, but this is the greatest cinematic comeback story of all time, in my opinion. Don't get mad, okay? In my opinion, the greatest cinematic comeback story of all time is the movie Frozen. <laughs> we can debate after service, but think about this. Elsa, she gets frozen. You know, in the world, like everything's over, she's gone. You're, I know you were crying in the theaters, mom and dad, and all of a sudden there's a hug and a tear shed and life comes back. You know, a great comeback story. This is what we love about movies. And our focus today is we're gonna be talking uh, through a passage where the bad guy, the enemy, thinks he's won. But there's gonna be a comeback. We're going all the way back to look for the promise of Jesus in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, the creation, like the beginning of time. Like the very beginning, God's created the earth. He's, he's put the stars and the sun and the moon in the sky and how he's created mankind, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3, it says this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden? But let me make sure we're clear. There's a command on them that there's, there's this one tree. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else is yours. And in Genesis 3, we find Eve with the serpent having this dialogue and this question, did he really say that? Did, are you sure? I mean, this is tempting at its finest. The serpent says, are you sure that he said that? It's not good to eat from this, this tree in the garden. The serpent is, is, is the devil or the manifestation that the devil is using to get his message across to Eve, to tempt her. It's important that we recognize that for the rest of the story. How do we know that this is true? You can tie it to other pieces of passage, like all the way on the other end of the book. Revelation 12, 9 says, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil, or Satan. 
the one deceiving the whole world. It's, it's interesting to me that the enemy starts off deceiving. It's in his character. He's a deceiver, deceiving the whole world, and that's what he still does today. He accuses and deceives people. It says that he was thrown down to earth with all the angels. First thing we have to know as we go through this, that he, the, the enemy, the enemy is a deceiver. We have to acknowledge that. that, that there's nothing trustworthy that comes from him. It says that the serpent was the shrewdest. If you look up the, the definition of shrewd, it means to be sharp or clever. He was the shrewdest. He, he knew what to say to deceive Eve. When it comes to this enemy, before we get to the rest of this passage, we have to stop pretending that there isn't one. I know that we want to live in a world where there's only heroes, where there's nothing bad, but we live in a world where there's a great deceiver and an enemy that is out to get us the second thing to add on to that, so let's acknowledge that. We have an enemy, we have a deceiver. We read of him in Genesis 3, verse one, deceiving Eve. The second thing when it comes to him, we have to acknowledge that he is created. I'm gonna say that again. He is created. He is not equal to God. When it comes to this battle of good and evil, it's not even close. The, the enemy, the serpent, the devil here is a created being. Sometimes I think when we view this battle going on between God and Satan, we put them on this even playing field. It's not the case. He's created, God is superior to all. He, and we're gonna see what that looks like in a little bit. It's not in the same league. It's also important to remember that Eve has re received her command from God not to eat the fruit, this first sin that's gonna enter the world. She received that command to not eat the fruit from Adam, not from God. Adam received the message from God. Eve received it from her husband, Adam. And if you're a spouse in here, you know that husbands aren't always great at delivering a message. So don't blame her. <laughs> Not like, it, it, that's important for us to remember. Let's keep reading. We got a lot to get through here. In verses six and seven of chapter 11, after she's gone back and forth with the serpent, it says this. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, then gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. In your Bibles, if you have a Bible, circle the word shame. This is the first time we hear of it. They felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They, they created the first clothing line. Adam and Eve Industries. And so they, the first thing they do, they've, commit, they've committed this act against God, they feel the shame and they, they create clothes for themselves. It says that their eyes were opened, that, that they felt shame, their eyes were opened. What were their eyes open to? Their eyes were open to their sin. At the moment they do this, they realize that they've sinned. We see that as the fruit of this is shame. They feel shame. They feel shame. 
It's important for us to remember that the original creation of this world was a place free of shame. And they, they felt this because for the first time ever, they realized they were naked. Can you imagine this awakening? <laughs> like, not only did you make this monumental mistake, all of a sudden you're like, whoa! I'm naked! Can you imagine? Like, I don't even know how you realize that. Like, like, ah, oh, we need trees to cover us. They have this moment of eye-opening. Happens in this moment. As we continue to read in verse 8, it says this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They hid. This is so true to us today. Yes, this is Genesis three, but how often do we do this? We commit an act that goes against God, we sin, we fall, and our first instinct is to hide. I need to hide because I'm feeling shame for this thing I've done. I need to retreat. The last place I wanna be is around people. The last place I wanna be is a place where the pastor's talking about God because I feel shameful. We turn inward, and then it says this, as they hid in the trees, then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Love this line. God calls to him. Adam, where are you? It's the best impression I got. Adam, where are you? I love this line because it trips me up. God knows where he's at. Why is God calling to him? There is specific reasons, I believe. God is not really wondering where Adam is. God is not surprised by anything. He knows exactly where Adam is. Adam is not calling to his physical, I and mean, God is not calling to Adam's physical location, but for the first time calling to the location of his heart. Adam, where are you? He's wanting him to acknowledge that he's lost. That he's lost. He's calling out to him so he will notice that he is lost. God does the same thing for us today. Maybe not in the verbal sense, we hear that voice, but God will call to us in very unique ways so we will acknowledge we are lost. Sometimes he uses people. I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life where I've had really good friends have really hard conversations with me Say, Shane, you're lost. Where are you at? Where, where are you? Why, why are you over here? You're lost. We have to be okay with sometimes people locating us and telling us we're lost. Yeah, I was thinking through this, and I have on my keys uh, what's called an Apple AirTag. Anybody know what that is? These tags, they go on your keys. My wife got it for me for a present because I lose my keys every day. And I no longer can lose it because if I lose my keys, I hop on my phone and I say, find keys, and it gives me a step-by-step -step -step direction to my keys. And when I get closer, it starts to beep at me. You're doing it, Shane. You're close. You're almost there. It's like the highlight of my day. Feels so accomplished. But this AirTag is interesting because the AirTag only is able to connect to my Bluetooth uh, on my phone from up to 20 feet. So how... When I leave it at a store or I leave it in another vehicle, how is it able to tell me it's there? Because it does that. Shane, your keys are three miles away. I have no idea how you got where you are. 
How is it able to do that? It does that because it uses other people's Bluetooth in the area to locate your key. God does the same to us. Sometimes it's in close proximity and we can get that call that we're lost really easy. Sometimes he's gonna use people around us to locate us and tell us we're lost. That's why God is calling to Adam to know he's lost. Also to lead him to confession. To lead him to a place of confession where he will say for the first time, God, I am here. Not where I'm supposed to be. God does the same thing to us when he calls to us It's to notice that we're lost, to lead us to confession, and then to seek and to see our accountability in what we did. We we have to become accountable for the sin, which is not what Adam does. Adam is like most men in this next passage. Because he replies to God. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit. And I ate it. What? God, it was her fault. I don't know. I went to the marriage seminar on Friday. This does not seem like the start of a good marriage. God, it's her fault. And I've interpreted it this way for years, that Adam is blaming Eve here. He's not. Read it again. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. Adam is blaming God because Eve was given to him by him. He's blaming God here, saying, God, it's your fault. God, if if you would have made me a better partner, come on, I wouldn't have done this. God, God, if you would have, you know, it's, it's your fault. And I know some of you right now are saying, unbelievable, Adam. How could you do that? We do it all the time when it comes to our sin and our failure. God, it's my circumstances. The circumstances of my life, the hurt and the pain I'm feeling, the brokenness I'm feeling, the loneliness I'm feeling, these circumstances, that's why I've sinned. Or maybe it's the people As Adam blames God for Eve, that God gave him. Maybe it's the people, you don't know God, that this person hurt me. So I I say some of the most dangerous words in the human dictionary. God, this person did this, so I deserve this. We're just like Adam. We're just like Eve. We're easily deceived and we cast blame back to God to rationalize our mistakes, to rationalize our sin. And you're like, Shane, where is Jesus in this? You promised a sermon about Jesus. We're getting there. But first, we have to realize that this fall plays a a major role in this. In verses 12, it says this, 12 through 14. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? Once again, is God surprised? What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. There's the moment Eve, God calls to Eve, 
Eve, what have you done? Once again, calling out on her to realize what had happened. Then there's the curse of the serpent. Cursing him for what he had done. Cursing the enemy, cursing the devil. And then we get to Genesis 3.15. Here's Jesus. Very beginning. I love that it's so close after the first sin of humanity. We hear of Jesus. It didn't take God, like God wasn't, didn't have to go to a room and come up with a plan. He had a plan. He knew it was gonna happen. Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring to come from Eve will strike the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. What does this mean? First, it's saying to us that Jesus, Jesus is going to come as a ransom that there will be a moment where Jesus will come to earth, leave heaven, come down to earth to have this interaction with the enemy where he will ransom himself and give of himself to defeat the enemy. Jesus will come as a ransom. And the second thing it says is that Jesus will suffer. In this prophecy, in this promise, it's telling us that Jesus will suffer says that you will strike his heel. Other translations say that you will bruise his heel. That Jesus is coming as a ransom to give of himself for all of humanity, for the mistake, the fall that had been made here, the redemption of sin, but he will suffer. The enemy will strike or bruise his heel. And if you know the story of Christ, you know what this suffering looks like that when he comes as this ransom, he comes to earth and he lives and then he is taken and he's beaten and bruised and mocked and then taken to the cross, beaten some more, whipped some more and hung in so much pain. I, I think sometimes we underestimate the amount of bruising the striking that it talks about here in Genesis 3.15 that Christ went through for us. That I think sometimes if we're honest, we even kind of rationalize in our head that he was God, so he must have not felt it. He felt every, every bit of this pain. Every whip, every bruise, everything. Jesus came and he will be bruised, he will the enemy will strike his heel, but then it ends with the third point. Jesus will ultimately defeat the enemy. That's a celebration, yes. <laughs> enemy serpent, you will strike his heel, and he will feel it. He'll feel pain, he'll feel the brokenness, but he will crush your head. When he goes to the cross, he hangs on the cross and he dies and they put him in a tomb. This is the comeback story moment. Man, can you imagine the enemy here? Just like high-fiving his people. We did it! We got him! People of the time think they've killed him. 
Man, we, we, we've defeated Jesus. But then three days later, Christ rolls the tomb, the stone away, and comes out victorious, conquering sin and death. This is the moment where Jesus, we see in Genesis 3.15, this is the squashing moment. That he's conquered sin and death. You think you won, but he won. And just like we said, the devil is a created being, and God is over him. Jesus is conquering him, and it doesn't end there. If you read the rest of the scripture all the way to the end, you know that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, and he's coming back with a vengeance to take back what is his. To step on the head of the enemy. To step on his head. What does this mean for us when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? How should we respond to Genesis 3.15, the, the scene of Christ Jesus in the passage? Knowing what he's done on the cross and through the grave for us, how should we live based off this? Number one, we should submit to him. This is a call to submission. This great Christ Messiah is gonna come and take our place for the sins humanity committed. Take our place, take our pain, take our punishment for us. We should live our life in a place of submission. Not, not an equality, not side by side. I, I love, I see these bumper stickers all the time. Like, Jesus is my friend. Like, he, he's your Lord. It's not just equality between us. My relationship with Jesus should be a place of submission where I fall on my face daily because of what he has done for me. Because of what he did for me from the very beginning, this promise to come. The second thing it should lead us to do is just lead us to serve him. We should live in a life of service for this payment that was paid that we deserve to pay. Not out of a mindset of we have to, but out of a mindset of gratitude. I think about what's happening in Bristlecone, why we've chosen to partner with this great organization. Because they're dedicated to serving people, to helping them. Us as Christians should live with the same mindset because of Christ, because of this, because of the crushing of the serpent, we should live a life of service. And the last thing we should do is we should praise him. We should praise him. We should live our lives in a position of praise and adoration for King Jesus. I wanna challenge you with this. Does your life look like that? Do you acknowledge that in Genesis 3.15 you see the blueprint for the payment that you should have had to pay? And does your life look like a life of submission and service and praise? Because that's how it should. Like I said at the beginning of this passage, this prophecy, this promise in Genesis 3, verses one through 15, talks of the great story of Christ coming to defeat the great enemy, Satan. So as I was preparing this week, I kind of got in a mindset of like, I'm tired of believing the lies. I'm tired of giving the enemy power when my Christ Jesus has already defeated him. 
So I wrote the devil a letter. You guys want me to read it? I wrote the devil a letter. Dear devil, great start. (laughs) At the very beginning, you thought you won. You thought you had beaten humanity at the very start. But God made a promise, a promise to send his son Jesus, who would take my place in the place of humanity to suffer on a cross and go to the grave, and then again, you think you won. Have you figured out you're a loser yet? He went to the grave and he conquered the grave, conquering sin and death. And when I live my life in submission and service and praise to him, he moves in me in marvelous ways. So dear enemy that I read in Genesis 3.15, this letter's to you to let you know that I'm submitting my life to Christ Jesus. You no longer have power over me. You no longer have a voice in my life because you are not a current enemy, you're a defeated enemy. I walk in freedom and peace because what Christ has done already, not what he's going to do, but what has already happened. For far too many years, I believed the lies, I believed the words that you've spoken into my head to tell me I'm not worth it, to tell me my sin is too great, but you are a created being and I serve a God that creates the universe and creates the stars and creates the sun and creates the moon. So dear enemy, hear me out. My hope today as I read this letter is that a room full of people will step up and read the same letter back to you, that we are done letting you have your way in our life and in the city of Reno. We speak the name of Jesus over ourselves and our brothers and our sisters, our mothers and our fathers, and over our city, proclaiming that Christ has won and he will reign forever, amen. So why don't we just sing, stand, and sing together like we said we would, a position of praise, praising the name of Jesus. Let's sing together. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Yes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Yes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow
praise the one that paid our debt. Praise him. That should be our lifestyle. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you and we praise you. Let us be a people who submit to you, Lord, who submit our life to you, who devote our life to serve you and live in a position of praise to you. We thank you for the amazing gift of grace in your son, Jesus, who paid the price for us. We thank you, we praise you for that. Father, we love you and we praise you. In your holy name, amen.